But this is Lesson 40 in the study of Romans. We're in Chapter 12. We've come to what are, is called the spiritual gifts. In the Greek, it's the charismata or charismatic gifts. And this is going to be kind of a hard lesson if you're new here today and probably nothing new if you're not. But here's the deal. My whole premise for the book of Romans is that because of the separation of the Romans from the root of their faith that was brought about by the expulsion of the Jewish people from Rome for a period of five years, they are, as Paul writes this letter, babes in the faith. Some really have no true faith at all. Because of this, Paul has to explain the gospel to them. That's how he opens the letter, explaining the gospel to them. The plan of God to them. The role of the Jewish people in the plan of God to them. The truth that's everywhere in the Bible that God is not through with the Jewish people. He has to tell them in the letter over and over. The gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so we'll look at the gifts in light of this as well today. Let's begin with verse 3 of chapter 12. And it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every." One among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Messiah, and individually members of one another. So what was the theme last week? Remember what the main theme last week was? It was humility. Because all good deeds and good behavior spring forth from humility, from setting yourself aside to humbling and doing what God asks us of us. And all sin springs forth from a self-centeredness, a lack of concern for what God thinks, a lack of concern for people, and an our only concern being for our own selfish desires. And so Paul, before speaking of the gifts, says, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And he's still trying to instill in them that the body of Messiah, there are no great people. There's only one great God. And that everything that you are is because of God. Any gifts you have are not of your own doing, but are gifts given by God through His grace. And to this he adds, even with the gifts that God has given us, we're not complete without each other. We're many, and together we make one whole body. Alone you're a finger or a toe. But together we make one new man. And Paul is trying to instill in the Romans something that he said much plainer to the Ephesians. In chapter 2 and verse 14 he says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in the flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
Through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. It was the intent of God that we be one body, that we function as one, having many parts different. Can a body be divided? If you separate from an arm from a man, does the arm live on? Of course not. Is the man complete without the arm? Of course not. Jew and non-Jew were to function as one new man to win the world over for God or at least fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. Together we were to be a light to the world. The elect of the Jewish people or the Jewish believers in the Messiah were to take the good news out to the nations and to do as Paul is doing, teach the whole of the word of God that was so graciously entrusted to them. The Gentiles were to pick up the good news, this faith in Messiah as well, and win their fellow countrymen to the Lord. And through this working together, not only would they win the nations to God, but when the Jewish people saw the nations turning to God because of the Messiah Yeshua, they would see the words of the prophets finally coming to be. Thinking that the kingdom was upon them, they would turn to the Messiah as well. One new man, Jew and non-Jew, working together to fulfill the words of the prophets and the words of God. The problem is in Rome, they're not working together. The world has crept in and divided them over the very things that Messiah gave his life for. To help us overcome. He gave his life that he might reconcile both Jew and non-Jew into one body, one new man, to serve God. That's what the text said. He did that through the execution stake. So Paul Paul tells the Colossians the same thing. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Messiah is all in all. No distinctions between Jew and Greek. One new man. Worshiping together in the same community. That's what Acts chapter 15 is all about. Making it easier for the non-Jew to become a part of the communities of the people of God. Forming one new man in Messiah. Each doing the things that the word of God requires of them specifically. Jews being Jews and following the Holy One of Israel. And the nations turning to the Holy One of Israel. Each with their own distinctions. Living together as one new man. They should be like this congregation, KSS, amen? Amen. Hallelujah. In Rome, however, we have two groups eating different foods, worshiping on different days, divided over leadership, anti-Semitism and replacement theology, theology creeping into the community. All of this to the degree that undoubtedly two of the people who are instrumental in bringing the communities of Rome, uh, forming the communities of Rome, have separated themselves from the Roman church. 
Remember, we read this a few weeks ago. Romans 15, verses 3 and 5 say, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in the Messiah, Yeshua. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their home. You see, we read in Acts chapter 18 that they were in Rome when Claudius expelled the Jewish people. They were part of the Roman community that was expelled about six or seven years earlier. They were expelled, and now two years or so after the doors opening back up for the Jewish people to return, they're meeting not with the Romans. They're in their own home. For some reason, they're not comfortable in their former congregation or the other congregations in Rome, and they've begun to meet in their own home. You see, the Roman church is fractured. Fractured over the very things that Messiah died for. The reconciling of Jew and non-Jew, making them into one new man. That's what chapters 9 through and 11, that's what he addressed. The importance of the Jewish people in the plan of God. And he did that in hopes, I'm sure, of addressing this replacement theology that has developed in Rome. They're thinking that we have replaced the Jews. They rejected Messiah and we have not, and God no longer loves the Jews. So all that has been addressed. And now in, chapter, in the next chapters, he's going to address some of the things that are causing this fracture to continue. Keeping restoration from happening. And he begins with these gifts that are given by God. Let's read verses 6 through 8 and see what these gifts are. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And I want you to know this something about this. It says, gifts differing according to the grace given us. And remember what this word grace meant. We covered it in the early chapters. I put the definition up here again. Focusing on especially the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. These gifts are given to us through the divine influence of God upon our hearts that we receive at salvation. And I want you to keep that on a back burner for a moment. Just keep it simmering back there. But Paul's point here is that we have gifts that are differing. If you put these gifts together, what you have is a one new man community. If we look at the gifts listed, what happens when one is removed? If we're in a community and one or the ones who teach leave the community, where does that leave us? It leaves us struggling to understand the word of God. How about the ones who perform services into the community, like the children's department or the deacons? What if they left? And as an example, what if Dom, who built the ark, started to build the ark, but then left before it was complete? You see, I can tell you that a congregation cannot grow without those who serve in places like the children's department. Givers. Without givers, a congregation can't function, at least in this age anyway can't even own a building or rent a building. 
If there's not clear leadership, if there's no group of elders who put in the time and the effort to direct the community, it can't function anymore than a body without a head. If the teachers leave, the word of God will not be understood. Well, God gives all of these things within the community, but he doesn't give them all to any one person. And that makes us dependent on one another. But together, we become a community, a kihla of Yeshua. And so, with this, Paul is attempting to telling them, you're missing the boat as far as being this kehilat that Yeshua gave his life for. They're incomplete. The Jewish people that they have alienated, particularly the Jewish followers of the Messiah, like Priscilla and Aquila, were to be the teachers. They had spent a lifetime studying the Torah and living out the Torah. Read the, word, read the book of Acts. These Jewish men were able to recite whole passages of Scripture with amazing accuracy because they had grown up hearing the words each week in the synagogue. Not only that, the apostles were eyewitnesses to the events of Yeshua's life in the words of Yeshua, which these Romans don't have yet because the complete gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John haven't even been written, much less distributed yet. These Romans, however, what did they have? They had a lifetime in worship of other gods and goddesses, gods like Mithra, goddesses like Ishtar, with no understanding of the Torah. They were not witnesses to the events of the life of Yeshua and only heard stories told secondhand or thirdhand. There's something else we should note about the gifts listed here. There's nothing miraculous about these gifts. Let's compare them with the gifts in Corinthians. Listen to the uh, gifts in the book of Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse 7. Now, to teach one the manifest... To each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given... For the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another the faith of the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the effecting of miracles. And to another prophecy. And to another distinguishing of spirits. And various kinds of tongues. To another with the interpretation of tongues. You see if you compare these gifts to the Romans... The only thing that really they have in common is this prophecy. And something else we need to note is that there's no mention of grace here in Corinthians. Back burner time. If we look at the gifts in Roman, they were given by the grace of God. The divine influence of God upon the heart. But these gifts are manifestations of the Spirit of God. In other words, these gifts are supernatural gifts The Spirit of God manifesting itself in the lives of the believers. You see, if there's one who's living a life for God, if one's heart is right before God and serving God, the Spirit is able to manifest these gifts in their life. Sadly, we don't see these gifts manifested too much in our country. And I have some theories as to why, but I'm not going to go into them here. But I want you to, but what I want to do is to try and understand why we're not seeing them mentioned in the letters to the Romans. We see them in the book of Corinthians, but not to the Romans. 
These are gifts that God uses through his people to set others free. They're gifts that we see evident in the lives of the apostles and other men in the book of Acts. We see that the Corinthians were familiar with these manifestations of the Spirit. And that's why Paul addresses them freely in that letter. Why no emphasis on the miraculous gifts to the Romans? Well, there's a couple possibilities. First, it may just not be the focus of the letter. Because in this letter, he's trying to mend some broken fences between the Jewish people and, and the Romans. It certainly has been the focus up till now. The focus of the letter has certainly been trying to emphasize how much we need one another. He opened this chapter with that. The focus has been on the good news given to us, not by works, but through the grace of God. And so here in Romans, he lists other things that are given by the grace of God, that the grace of God should instill in us. You see, if we could get the gifts that are mentioned here in the book of Romans working, and he could mend the fences in Rome... If, we, if he could, through this letter, turn these folks back into being one new man God intended, I think the miraculous would follow. You see, Paul knows the farther these folks move away from what God intended, the less likely they are to see manifestations of the Spirit of God. If you can't operate in the gifts given through the grace of God, It's unlikely that God is going to manifest his supernatural gifts in your life either. And that's what's wrong with this country today. It's what's wrong with most of the church in the world today. So it could be the focus of the letter, but it could be because of the need of this letter, the focus of this letter, The fact that these people are so far from the plan of God, there are no manifestations of the Spirit in the community. And that's exactly what I think. There are none happening there. Now, over the last few weeks, I've tried to show that the church in Rome has been stunted. It's not a mature community of believers in Yeshua. The fact that Paul has to go over all the elementary principles of the faith is evidence of that. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says about the elementary principles of the faith in chapter 6. It says, Therefore, leaving elementary teaching about Messiah, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing." laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And the writer says, let us leave these elementary principles of the faith and move on, press on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance. Well, the whole book of Romans is a letter about repentance from dead works. And it says from washings, or we could say immersion or baptism. Paul covered that elementary principle in chapter 6. The resurrection, oh, he covered that in chapter 6 as well, of eternal judgment. Well, he's going to cover that in chapters 13 and 14. These folks are babes. And I'm going to tell you, there's no evidence in history that anything ever changed. There's no evidence that I can see that they ever matured in the faith. 
After all, the teachers of the community, the root of the faith has been removed for five years and now they're still being alienated. The fact that there's no mention of the miraculous gifts and manifestation of the Spirit, I think is evidence of that as well. Paul says he wants to come to them and preach the gospel. But it's at least another year before he arrives, and then he arrives as a prisoner who can't move about freely. So there's no real evidence that Paul ever corrected the problems in Rome, or that they even paid any attention to this letter. But there's plenty of evidence that these Romans never repented from their replacement theology, from their anti-Semitism that was so prevalent in Rome at the time. In fact, quite the contrary, one of the Roman church fathers writes this, Justin Martyr. He says, The custom of circumcising the flesh handed down from Abraham was given to you as a distinguishing mark to set you off from the other nations and from us Christians. The purpose of this was that you and only you might suffer the afflictions that are now justly yours. That only your land be desolate and your cities ruined by fire. And that the, fir- and the fruits of your land be eaten by strangers before your very eyes. That not one of you be permitted to enter your city of Jerusalem. Your circumcision of the flesh is the only mark by which you can certainly be distinguished from other men. As I stated before, it was the reason of your sins and the sins of your fathers, among other precepts, God imposed upon you the observance of the Sabbath as a mark. What? What Bible is he reading? <laughs> what has he got against taking a day off and resting? <laughs> I mean, is there, ever any, is there any evidence here that he ever understood the covenant God made with Israel? It certainly appears that he didn't understand that it was a sign given to the offspring of the man of faith, Abraham, as Paul wrote earlier. Is there any reason that, anything here, uh, any reason to believe that he ever understood God's faithfulness so clearly that Paul stated so clearly in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3? It says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been trusted with the very words of God. What if some of them didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. I don't think he read that. You see, this type of corrupt and evil thought is not found in Scripture, but it's passed on to you through the teachings of others. We get to a place of instead of viewing the world through the lens of the Word of God and making corrections in your life, you're taught error and then you view Scripture through the lens of the error that you have been taught. And then instead of adjusting your behavior to conform to the Word of God, you adjust the Word of God to conform to your behavior and your prejudices. Do you suppose that this church father ever read this? Romans chapter 4 verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. So then he is the father of us all who believe. 
believe, but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. He is the father of the circumcised who are who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I don't think Martyr ever read the book of Romans, at face value anyway. But he more than likely read it through the lens of some false teaching that he heard before he read it. He read it through the lens of his own life circumstances, his own hatred, his own prejudices. Because if he did read Romans, he certainly did not understand Paul's words. At least you couldn't prove it by his words. Here's another quote by this guy. Listen to this. This is only 150 common era. And therefore all of this happened to you rightly and well, for you slew the just one and his prophets before him. And now ye reject And as far as in you lies dishonor those that set their hope on him and God Almighty, the maker of the universe, who sent him, cursing in your synagogues them that believe on Messiah, for you have not the authority to raise your own hands against us because of them who are now supreme. But as often as you could, you also, this also you did. You know, He not only didn't read the book of Romans, but I doubt that he ever read the words of the Master. Listen to what John chapter 10 says, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is the hired hand is not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold which I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock. One shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I... I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my father. So he must have missed those verses. He must have got a a book of John without chapter 10. You see, there's no reason to believe that this church father, who they call the very first apologist, this teacher of the church ever read, or if he did read, he did not understand the words of Paul, nor did he understand the words of Yeshua. This type of thinking is not from Scripture. It comes from other men. Once learned, you read scripture through the colored glasses given you by other men. You got to take those glasses off and read it for yourself and pray about it before you read. If this is what the Roman church evolved to in less than a hundred years, the root of the congregation and this thought cannot be because this thought cannot come from this letter to the Romans. 
right? Because you can't find those things in there. You can't find anything like that. You can't find the words of, the, of Yeshua, anything like that in the Gospels. I certainly hope you don't think that this type of thing began with martyr. He learned these things from someone. Who learned them from someone. He learned this hatred of the Jewish people. He learned replacement theology from others. Because you can't find that in the letter to the Romans. And you can't find it anywhere else in scripture. Right? Let's look at one of his successors. This guy is a little bit farther down the line. And I could go on and on and on all through history and find the same things in every generation. And I've done it. But I just pulled these on. On account of their unbelief and other insults which they heaped upon Jesus, the Jews will not only suffer more than others in the judgment which is believed to impend over the world, but have even already endured such suffering. For what nation is in exile from their own metropolis and from the place sacred to the worship of their fathers, save the Jews alone? And calamities they have suffered because they were most, a most wicked nation, which although guilty of many sins, yet, yet has been punished so severely for none as for those that were committed against our Jesus. I guess this guy never read Romans 9 through 11. Right? Our Jesus? Nor did he understand Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As he said of Messiah, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both into one body through God, through the cross. To God, through the cross. Yeshua is no longer the one, in this guy's thinking, Yeshua is no longer the one who reconciles Jew and non-Jew, but he's now our Jesus. If this is what the Roman church has evolved to in this short a time, we have to be seeing the root of these teachings being addressed by Paul in the letter to the Romans. The point is, you don't learn this type of erroneous thought by studying the Bible. You learn it from your predecessors. We can see it in the church today. You don't find Easter in the Bible. You learn it from your predecessors. And then you continue on with it. You hold on to it like it was the gospel. It's not even in the gospel. And if this is the condition and the thought of the Roman church in 58 Common Era, if these are indeed the seeds that Paul is addressing, is it any wonder that he doesn't have to speak about the manifestations of the Spirit? The Spirit of God is not going to empower this type of thought. Other spirits might empower this type of thought. But I can tell you now, the Spirit of God is not anti-Semitic. And here's the tragedy. This is the condition of the Roman church at approximately 58 common year. Babes! And with Paul's limited access access, and death in Rome in the early to mid-60s, it doesn't look as if much changed. The Gentile church in Rome are babes in the Lord. Paul says in chapter 11, 
Some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not boast over the branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. They've been separated from the root. What happens in 70 common era, just a few short years later, the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple. Not only that, most of the apostles have died. Paul is dead. Peter's dead. And with that, Rome begins to be not only the dominant force politically in the world, but the church of Rome begins to become the seat of faith in the Messiah Yeshua. Remember what Oregon said in his quote, For what nation is in exile from their own metropolis and from the sacred place of worship of their fathers save the Jews alone? He says that in one, because in 135 Common Era, after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, the Jewish people are completely removed off the land and it becomes Palestine. And with that, the seat of the faith, now being in Rome, is sealed. Rome will become the new seat of the church fathers. Rome with all of its anti-Semitism. Rome with its... P- Replacement theology and Rome with its twisting of the word of God has become the seat of the faith. I don't know what faith, but the seat of the faith. I don't know what faith in what. Finally, in 325 common era, the separation from the root is complete. Listen to this. The words of Constantine as quoted by Eusebius. It was in the first place declared improper to follow the custom of the Jews in celebration of this holy festival because their hands have been stained with crime. The minds of these wretched men are necessarily blinded. Let us then have nothing in common with the Jews who are our adversaries. Let us studiously avoid contact with that evil way. For how can they entertain right views on any point after having compassed the death of the Lord, being out of their minds and guided not by sound reason, but unrestrained passion, wherever the innate madness carries them, lest pure minds should appear to share in the customs of a people so utterly depraved. Therefore, this irregularity must be corrected in order that we may no more have anything in common with these parasites, No single point in common with the perjury of the Jews. Listen, folks, you don't get this type of ignorant thinking from scriptures. It's not there. This type of hatred is passed on from generation to generation. And the seeds of all of this are found in Emperor Claudius and the expulsion of the Jews in 49 common era. The Romans were separated from the root of the faith. And so the twisting of Paul's words became an easy matter. And they're twisted till this day. It's no different today. The church of the USA is not a first century messianic community. Its roots are not found in Torah not even in the truths of the letter to the Romans. The church, for the most part, is still rooted in Rome. Roman error in the scriptures, Roman replacement theology, Roman anti-Semitism, Roman days of worship, Roman ignorance of the word of God, 
but thank God for his grace and his mercy because there's change afoot. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.